Psalm 119, 35, 25, excuse me, through 32. My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to your word. When I told of my ways, you answered me. Teach me your statutes. Make me understand the way of your precepts, and I will meditate on your wondrous works. My soul melts away for sorrow. Strengthen me according to your word. Put false ways from me, and graciously teach me your law. I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I set your rules before me. I cling to your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. I will run in the way of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Pray with me. Lord, we certainly need your guidance this morning as we look at your word. It is clear that you love us. All morning we have heard the message and the, and the consistency of your love and your care for us, Lord. So I pray that as we look and we, we, we assess what you have for us in your word this morning, that we would be clearly seeing Jesus magnified in the pages of Scripture. Lord, help us this morning. In Jesus' name, amen. I have a story for you that I hesitate to share. A few years ago, my family was blindsided by a disruptive and plainly life-altering request that would change the course of my life to this day. I don't recall the exact moment it came, but I do remember that it started with a subtle comment and over a few weeks morphed into what would be a massive and unavoidable issue in my home. And then one day, after a long and arduous time at work and in class after that, I came home to a wife and four children eagerly waiting to ask me for a cat. You heard me, a cat. Like any respectable dog lover, I immediately shut it down. I shut it down and moved on. But I would eventually learn that my dear wife, you know her, uh, she was prepared for the long game. And fast forward past numerous lists of reasons and rebuttals, explanations, and the daily cycle of, but dad, and you will see that I held firm. That is, until I didn't. Captain Hook joined the Palin family in February of 2018. Now, you might think this was a complete defeat, but although I had lost the battle, in my mind, the war was far from over. You see, I insisted, okay, if this is going to happen, I'm not going to have anything to do with this cat. I'm not going to love on it. I'm not going to take care of it. That's for you. But of course, I wasn't a complete monster. I would give it attention at times, petting it here or there, but of course strictly on my own terms. And if things had just stay this way, 
I think we would have been fine. I'd keep to my side of the house, him to his, but that's not exactly what happened, as I'm sure you can tell. As I would get up in the morning, early, usually much more early than the children and and Barbara, this dumb cat would come downstairs and would sit with me as I studied. And I was okay with it because there was no one to admit anything to. No one was there. It was just us. And we didn't have to be enemies when everybody was sleeping. It's okay. But it didn't stop there, of course. You see... I did not realize it, but until almost five years later when I'm sitting there holding the cat with both wife and kids in the room, that, of course, at my wife's help, something had clearly changed. I became cat tolerant. I had changed and didn't even know it. My story is not the same as many of you, and hopefully I've not lost too much of your respect this morning, but most of us know that change can sneak up on you when you spend enough time with someone or something, even a cat. And looking at our passage this morning, we will see how spending time in God's Word does exactly that. It brings real change. That is, for us to delight in the Word of God, as we have been speaking through in Psalm 119, to delight in the Word of God is to actually be changed by it. This is the primary focus of our passage this morning, but to demonstrate it, we need to think quickly, going back and recalling what we considered last week. To to delight in the Word is to first delight in God Himself. To delight in the Word is to first delight in God Himself. That is, our love for the Lord launches us into the Bible because it's where we find Him. It's where we find Him and we know that we can get more of Him. And when we see Him more, we're enticed and even stirred up more to a greater joy and delight. And it is this joyous and magnificent cycle that causes us to launch both into joy and then to be refueled by His Word to have more and more affection for Him. And this cycle, though it leads us into that affection, there is more that happens. Not more as in that's inefficient, or insufficient rather, but more as to say that we gain access to what we didn't realize was there and available to us all along. Specifically, as we see who God is and what He is like, we actually for the first time start to see ourselves appropriately. Now when I say we see ourselves appropriately, I mean we get to see ourselves in relationship to God Himself. We see things like how we at times can feel like we have control, but then realize in reading that we never do. And He always does. Or maybe it's the opposite, that we can feel as if we're completely helpless and we're just simply objects of a series of random events, but we're not. We can see that He knows us and He is always in complete control. Maybe you feel like you're beyond being helped and everything you've tried has failed and change will only ever be for the worse and never for the better. And finding this in the Scripture, you will see that is simply not true. You can watch and you can see clearly, knowing who the living God is, that He is a Redeemer and a Reformer of men and women. And He's been doing it since the beginning of time. All of this from reading the Word. This happens in many ways, often without knowing. 
But the more time we spent watching Him and observing Him and seeking Him, we start to see just how different He is from us. And the psalmist this morning finds himself in this exact position. In his way, he confesses what he has discovered, observing God in the Scripture and understanding himself as a result of that. And he starts by saying these two things. He says, My soul clings to the dust. Give me life according to Your Word. When I, when I told of my ways, You answered me. Teach me Your statutes. Like some of us, when we observe the character of God and what He is like, we can experience a kind of disconnect as if a reality in our minds missed the bus to go from our minds to our hearts. And we overlook what it means for us who are not that way. The way He is, rather. Or how we don't honor Him and how we conduct ourselves. The psalmist doesn't have this problem, it seems. He seems to get it. And his observation is not insufficient insufficient, but he recognizes what we all should see, which is simply that there is a massive problem when you see yourself in light of who God is. It's a massive problem. As our passage shares, and the Bible clarifies consistently from end to end, we are all, at one point or another, in a relationship with God that when left alone is simply hostile. It's hostile. It's more than not being able to measure up to who He is. Well, we're never going to do that. It's hostile starting with the simple detail that we simply do not want to be like Him. That is, we are actually against Him in almost all of our ways. This is, is, is almost impossible to, to see and to recognize, recognize this outside of the Scripture because when we don't look at God, we, can, we compare ourselves to each other, right? And how does that go? You usually always end up on the top end of that, like me, when we're looking around. Our hostility towards God is not depicted in a way unless we look at the Scripture and see what it is for us to understand who God is and how we are, really. And this is not an appropriate view of ourselves. To compare ourselves to another and not to look at the Scripture and to see how we really, really actually are. And like so many before us, our hostility usually has more to do with our preferences than being a mass murderer. So the, the get-out-of-jail-free card that we're all trying to give ourselves right now to think we're not that bad, that doesn't cut it when we read the Scripture, does it? We see on every page over and over again, how the people of God, whom He reveals Himself to, whom He takes care of, whom He delivers from danger, those He spares from destruction, the ones He provides for while they're in need, that at the end of the day, every one of them, when they're left to themselves, when they put their foot to the pavement and it actually matters, they only want what God can do for them and nothing more. That's it. So when we realize this, when we see that we're in this kind of company, and we see Him and His goodness, His justice and His perfection, His sovereignty, and His being completely different from us, we are forced to realize that we're just not simply in a good spot. We see our shallow dismissiveness towards Him and His ways. We see our pride that insists He conforms to our ideas of right and wrong. 
We see our arrogance in demanding that we, that we actually are the ones that believe what's right and what's fair. We see these and many more. And we join the chorus of many in this world who can do nothing more than say, my soul clings to the dust and I have considered my ways and my soul melts for sorrow. The pattern of the psalmist to recognize who he is in light of who God is. To see and recognize our sin and posture before the Almighty is one thing, but another thing altogether is to grow in discontent with it. It's one thing to recognize that we fail. It is one thing to know that we have sin in our life. It is a completely other thing. In fact, I would challenge us to understand it is a supernatural thing to actually be discontent with it, to not be okay with it. Even if, like so many of us, even if that discontent is in the slightest amount, the most mustard seed-ish amount, it is actually evidence of change. Something is happening. We know this because like the psalmist, it is in the presence of this reality that we are hit and we, we are hit with and examine as if for the first time what has always been true of, the, true of us, which is there is something radically wrong that needs to be dealt with in our lives, with who we are. And this sorrow, this discontentment, understanding that we have nothing in ourselves to hope in, is actually the beginning of wisdom. It is the change of mind and heart that goes from there is nothing I cannot do to simply I am nothing at all. I am dust. And I cling to nothing but the dust. There is nothing out there in the world that will do this. There are plenty of ways to show us how wicked we are and small we are, but nothing shows us our position before the Almighty like His Word. The world will tell you to keep trying, but the Word of God will show us we are just made of dust. The world will tell us to, that uh, change is not worth it and things like you be you, but God's Word shows us it is worth it and it is worth giving everything up for. It will sober us from our stupor and it will help us to see that we cannot do this alone and that we desperately need help. And that is ultimately what we find. That is, we need help to change. So these words of confession that we see in the beginning of this passage, they're there, but they don't stand alone. They are informed. They're informed by understanding that God is there and He does not neglect the contrite or turn away the repentant. So the Scripture-informed voice does not delay, but cries out almost instantaneously, Give me life according to Your Word. Teach me Your statutes. Make me understand the way of Your precepts. Strengthen me according to Your Word. And the Lord who is there doesn't leave the psalmist and He certainly won't leave us alone in silence, but He responds by filling our heart with faith, knowing who He is and knowing how He deals with us even in our tragic state. And we know this. We know this because of what comes next. The psalmist does not leave 
his condition as the final word on the matter. That is, he knows who he is dealing with. He's dealing with the Lord. And knowing who he's speaking to, he calls on him, wanting a share of what he has seen put on display over and over and over again in the Bible. The psalmist makes two calls to the Lord as, he get, as we get to verse 29. We'll spend some time here because I think this is what's going to really ground us. And these are the things that are going to make the difference. First, he says, put false ways from me. Or put them away from me. And what's hard to see here is that the psalmist is not asking, but he's demanding. He's insisting. Knowing who he speaks to, understanding his posture before him, he looks to the covenant Lord and he insists that he remove, remove from me the path of lies. That would be my, a literal, more literal translation. Not as a sense of entitlement, but entitlement, which we're all familiar with, but out of a sense of desperation. Knowing, knowing that there is no other way for this to happen but the Lord Himself to intervene. And He calls on the same Lord, knowing His Bible and knowing what He has done, He calls on the same Lord who exposed the path of lies that entrapped our first parents. He calls on the same One who in His kindness was patient to Abraham and to Sarah as they slowly departed from their way of doing things. And He called on Him who, gave, who giving Jacob a limp revealed the destruction of lying ways. He calls on the same Almighty who demonstrated over and over again the lies of the Egyptians as they enticed the people and made them think that this would be better for them to be in Egypt than to be with the Lord. And He calls on the same One who after the marvelous deliverance of the people endured their lies and in patience cared for them, never ever once leaving their side. This is who He calls on. And out of the realization of His state, knowing that He has been swept up in His own lies, the things that He has believed that this world has offered, He looks to the One who has done quick work of changing men and women like Him since the beginning. And He pleads that this would be true of Him too. But what about us? It may not be obvious, but what else is our sin but a path carved out by lies? Is it anything but this? From the very beginning, lies have been what we have clinged to and what we have chased. It is lies that tell us this or that is better and it's worth the risk to walk from the Lord. It is lies that tell us not to believe who God is and what He, what he has done. It is lies that keep us from trusting Him. And it is lies that will convince us to push away any hope to not cry out to Him when we are in need. If you are beaten up with sin or you feel too weak to cry out to Him, you are not reckoning with reality. Brother, sister, friend, you are entertaining lies. If you feel like sin has your number and there is no hope, He is there. And He knows your name. And if you would have any speck of desire to see sin purged from your life, He will not fail you. He will not turn you away. Cry to Him. Cry out to Him and join a long line of sinners who by faith have been swept up in the transforming power of God in Scripture. He paid for it. He paid for our sin. It has no claim on you and you don't have to walk as though it does. 
Walk in freedom from sin because of the blood of Christ, knowing that you are not chained anymore, but you are free because the debt that you think you have has been paid for permanently and forever in Christ, and it will never creep up on you ever again. Walk in freedom. If you're weighed down by the guilt of failure, you've trusted the Lord and you have departed from the faith. And you feel it. Confess your sins to Him. Because He's faithful and just to forgive. If you hear it now and you're encouraged, but you know there's going to be a moment at 2 or 3 in the morning or when no one's around, and you fear that your memory's going to fail you, delight in the Word of God because it is full of testimonies to remind you that He is there and He will not abandon you. He will not. And this is exactly where the psalmist takes us when he pleads, secondly, in 29, graciously teach me your law. Now, uh, forgive me. I'm going to nerd out for just a moment and then we'll be back on the regular path. Uh, So better or worse, we don't know, but we'll see. His request here is a bit hard to make out. And I think it's easier if we try to uh, assess what what the poet is doing, the psalmist. The verb to teach in the English is actually assumed. Uh, It's it's not really in the text. It's it's kind of a and this is kind of a loaded phrase because it's difficult to sift out exactly what's going on in the actual verb because of the difference between Hebrew and English. But the emphasis here is not on learning. It's actually on receiving. Maybe that's too much nuance for some folks. But the adverb here, graciously, is actually the verb. Now, what does this mean? It communicates a strong and intense plea from the psalmist to the Lord Yahweh to be favored, knowing that nothing is favorable in themselves. In a sense, he's crying out, deal with me in a way I don't... that I don't deserve. I know I don't deserve it. And be favorable. Be kind to me. To say it in a completely different way together, remove from me the path of lies. And according to your instruction, your law, be gracious to me. That is, the psalmist asked God would renovate his life according to his word, according to his ways. That he would grant him favor and change him. When you think about these two things that's going on in this small little section, I think it's two words when you break down the verse. Be gracious to me according to your law. According to your ways. We can look so clearly and we could think, don't be fooled to think that your sin and my sin to mean that it is dealt with graciously is for God to take it and to do something with it Whatever it is, we don't know, but it's not on us. But for God to be just, to never set aside His justice, to never set aside His goodness, what it means for God to deal graciously with us and do it according to His law is that He takes that sin and He deals with it in the cross. That's what it means for Jesus to deal with us according to His graciousness and the law. 
God does not just sweep our wrongdoing under the rug, so to speak. He takes it and He nails it to the cross and He pays it in full in ways that we will never understand. Brothers and sisters, we will never understand it. It is important to us. It is important for us to understand that everything that's about to follow in this passage only comes because of what happens in these two verses. We receive in our state, knowing and seeing in the Scripture and reading the Scripture and seeing who we are and who He is and understanding there is hostility that is going on there, only gets dealt with one way. And that is for God and His infinite justice to never turn aside, but to endure it for you and for me. For your sin to not be held accountable by you, but in Christ. All of it. None of it to be left. You are not going to see or experience true change in your life until you throw in the towel on your own effort, on your own skill, on your own projections, and call out to the gracious Lord and ask Him to change you. He has done the work. He has paid the price. There, is not, there are no transactions to be had. It is covered. It is done. But we still act like we got to tap dance, right? Like we got to perform. Like we got to pull it for, together. But we hang on verses like verse 29. When we cry out to Him and we say, deal with us rightly and in grace knowing it is Him that does it all. We need to know this because you and I will be tempted to think that this idea of change or reading your Bible for change is about tweaking our approach, right? And it's not. It's not about abandoning our approach altogether. It's about looking to the One who actually can reshape you and reshape me and reform us into new people. Not... Not a fake it till you make it attitude, which is everywhere, and I know it. I've adopted it at times. It's about real change taking place. Out of real change, that is change that is at the depth of our hearts, we will see fruit then start to pop off in our life. Change is when we start to actually, it's, it's, it's not necessarily about acting differently, but real change is when our hearts shift from one place to another. Don't read the text and think that change in your life is about how you act and what you do. Real, God-transforming change, the kind of change that Jesus purchased and secured is about your desires and your taste buds, the things you like and the things that you don't like. And those are the things that change. It's so deep that when it happens, you actually almost don't even notice it. You start to wonder, when did I stop liking that stuff? When did I start loving this? That's real change. And as God does this, we see the same thing. We see the same thing taking place in the psalmist's experience here in these passages. And like him, we change our zip codes from despair to hope, from knowing that we're destroyed to knowing we don't have to be. And he says, I have chosen the way of faithfulness. I have set Your rules before me. I cling to Your testimonies, O Lord. Let me not be put to shame. 
Our confidence then is not thinking about what we can do or cannot do, in him, but in Him who provides and does it all. That is our confidence. It is in Him. Not what we can or can't muster up. It is, it is, it is confidence in Him and what He says. So when the path of lies show up as it will, we're tempted by what they, what they propose, and we will be, we can remain faithful because we know the One who has changed us and what He has done, and we can trust in what He tells us, and you can absolutely trust in His work. And you can tell that temptation to go where it came from. Lastly, when we are caught up in the Word, that is, when we see God revealed in the Bible and we see as He opens our eyes to see Him and ourselves as we really are, there is something more going on than behavior modification. Much more. Please do not leave here thinking that you can behave better if you read your Bible. That is not what's going on. He says in the last verse, I will run in the ways of your commandments when you enlarge my heart. Brothers, sisters, if we are in Christ, we are being made into something new. That is, when we come in contact with the living God and by faith are covered in the saving blood of Christ, having all of our sins forgiven, we are not just left with the clean heart. We are given a new one altogether. We are given a heart by God that does much more than abide by the rules and is nice. That would be nice, but there's more to it. No, brothers, sisters, we are actually unchained. We are free from our sins and let loose to run hard after righteousness. Or as Paul said, we are free in regard to sin and slaves to righteousness. This is what it means when Christ calls His offering the blood of the covenant. And that He has purchased and and secured and distributed new hearts to His people. Not someday, but now. Right now. So they can run loose. So they can be unleashed and bolt for righteousness. And in all of this, as we wind down, as we consider all of these things, I think it's important that we leave with at least three simple ways to see it in our lives Monday through Friday. Saturday too. The first is, These are all things that we've explored already. We must go to our Bibles and see God and ourselves as we really are. You can go there and you can crack it open and you can find good reason to vote one way or another, but that's not what it's for. You can go there and you can build a case against a brother or a sister or somebody because you have one but that's not what it's there for. The Bible is there for us. It is God's revelation of Himself to us. And in light of looking at who He is, look at it and read and be transformed seeing Him as He really is. And not our image of Him, but as He really is on His own terms. And then, in that, see who you are. You want to know what your identity is? You want to know how to identify? Read the Bible. It'll show you. 
You're either dead or you're in Christ. Read the Bible and see who God is and see who we are. Number two, when the Bible shows us our sin, when the Bible shows us our sin in faith, we must go to Him and repent. Nothing new here. Remember, He's there. And that change has already started to happen. When He has changed the way that you perceive your sin so that you are angry with it, you hate it, you desire that it would be gone, that is not normal. Do you understand that? That's not normal. If you spend any time with people that are not transformed by Christ, you must be convinced that to have disdain for wickedness is not something that you come out of the womb with. That is something that God is doing. So when you identify it and you see it, repent. Like the psalmist, go to the Lord with your sin and know confidently that He will remove the paths of lies from you and He has grace there to receive you. And lastly, knowing God has freed us and given us all we need Brothers and sisters, we got to run hard. We must be a people. Let us be a people both in history, in this country, in this state, in this town, that run hard after the Lord and seek to be changed into His image. All because we know that to, light, to delight in the Word is to be changed by it. Find the Lord in in the Word. Meet Him there and be changed by Him. I pray that's what would happen to all of us. Let's pray together. Heavenly Father, You know all of our hearts. Holy Spirit, You know even now as You move among Your people where conviction belongs and where it doesn't, where some need to be freed and recognize they are free from sin, and some need to recognize that it is sin. Lord, I pray that you would do this work in us. I pray, Lord, that we would look to your word, and we know it is gifted to us, it is given to us by you and held to us and delivered to us so that we can know you and we can know who we are. Lord, and that we would respond appropriately knowing that you, Jesus, have paid the way for us all. But we need you to change our hearts. We need you to give us new ones. So I pray, if anybody here doesn't know you, Lord, that they would be transformed by your Holy Spirit and a new heart, a heart of flesh, would be given. I pray they would glorify you and honor you with their lives. Many of us, Lord, just need to remember that you're there and we can come to you. And I pray that you would help us to do this. May we not be timid, but may we always return to you amazed at who you are and what you've done. In Jesus' name, amen.